to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast about culture, history, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf, Editor-in-Chief of Conservative Pathways, a medium online journal, and a writer of columns at ARC Digital, ARC Digital, and The Bulwark. Today, my guest is Rabbi Joshua Uter, a well-known and famous online and otherwise educator on Jewish and general topics. He is well known not only among communities, but also on social media. Uh, today we will be talking about two main topics. One is this. his Sacred Slogans Project, which is an examination of the use of certain religious principles and ideas and expanding them perhaps far beyond what their source material allows and in the name of political purposes. And then we will talk about uh, the more positive side of social media and how it is to be a pedagogue and an instructor. Rabbi Yuder, welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So first, and the first question which came to mind when I noticed that you started this um, Sacred Slogans project, which is at your website, joshuter.com. Uh, first question that came to mind was, why now? These slogans have been around or in play for since before you or I were born. What suddenly caused you to think, well, I need to do a project on this now? So, believe it or not, I think Twitter and Mike, the more recent exposure to Twitter that I've seen, particularly after uh, the last U.S. presidential election, um, where I just saw this stuff being used more and more often. And, you know, you're right. Uh, this People have been selectively citing stuff from scripture or from sacred texts for, you could argue, centuries. Um, often to uh, promote or advocate certain political policies or various agendas. Um, but just based on pure exposure, I saw a lot more of it and a lot more activism behind it, particularly on social media um, in the wake of uh, uh, President Trump's election as a way of almost, I would assume, to energize a religious base to... In, the cases I dealt with uh, oppose certain policies that um, uh, that people see have just been uh, taking over, um, and also not just in the U.S. but also in Israel. Um, there was a candidate for uh, in labor um, for their slate who um, uh, uh, a reporter had sent me a link to his campaign video that used about three or four of the same things that uh, I had mentioned that get cited often enough in the U.S., and you find that in, uh, in Israel, too. Um, so I think it was the impetus for me doing it now uh, was just being inundated with it repeatedly uh, and seeing it spread because slogans by their nature uh, are supposed to be sticky. They're, they're designed to be easily repeatable, that you could hang so much on that people can, you know, write a couple of words on a placard and 
bring them to protests and shut down conversations just by saying a couple of words uh, as a substitute for an argument because you just assume, oh, these words mean exactly what I want them to. So it was just so, so much of it as of late that I was exposed to. And that was probably why now uh, it was before anything else. Um, so could you provide uh, me and uh, our audience perhaps with one or two specific examples uh, of the use of sacred slogans uh, since Trump's election? Sure. Um, so the first one that I had in my head when I did this uh, came after... Uh, the travel ban, which was, if I'm remembering right, one of Trump's first major actions after uh, the inauguration. Uh, I think it was in uh, it was in January, and immediately after he signed that, there was you know protests all over the place, and there happened to have been one uh, in Jerusalem too that uh, I happened to have attended. It was the first uh, political rally that. I had been to since, I think, Soviet jury many years ago. Um, and it was something which I personally felt very strongly about, even you know, ignoring the, the substance of the, uh, of the executive order. My feeling at the time was that it was written with all of the care and cons concern of like a college student who's writing a term paper and starting 2 a.m. the night before it was due. And anyone who has that much power and wields it so cavalierly really needs to, you know, be held in check. But at this, you know, at, at this, uh, this rally, I knew, noticed there were a whole bunch of signs, you know, that said, love the stranger, uh, implying, well, people from other countries, we, you know, as associating the biblical commandment of loving the stranger explicitly with refugee policies of having, uh, however, I, I mean, didn't really get into argument details with them, um, but the assumption, considering it was against the uh, uh, the travel ban, was the whole idea of saying this group, however you want to define, is going to be excluded. Well, this goes against Jewish ideals, um, and I understood kind of where this is coming from. But I was also thinking that, you know, if you're going to use the biblical model of a ger, uh, which is the Hebrew term for stranger. Um, and you take that to all of its entire conclusions, you're going to wind up with very different policies than, you know, certainly open borders or even, you know, more open, some degree of open borders. There's still a whole lot of restrictions associated with that, such as who counts to be a stranger, who do you include, who gets excluded, what are the conditions for inclusion? And there's a lot to unpack there that doesn't translate well to any of the major policies. And that kind of bothered me. Even if I could agree with the sentiment of this executive order is bad, the way it was trying to be promoted was there's a religious problem with this, such that Jews ought to have a religious problem with this. And taking it a step further, even, you know, the God of the Jewish people would object to that. And when you take it down to its logical conclusion, uh, I find found it very disturbing. Again, here in this case, even when I agreed with a specific sentiment of this travel ban is probably bad. Interesting. Um, but if I may uh, play devil's advocate here, most people need slogans or catchphrases or credos to function in everyday life. Most of us are not 
really that careful about things outside our specific realm of expertise, nor do we have the time or the energy to. Uh, a lot of people go according to, say, the golden rule or according, according to a few key principles. Um, and even perhaps one might argue, okay, so maybe th this position isn't necessarily uh, the commanded by God, but maybe God would endorse it. Maybe going, it's going above beyond the call of duty uh, with that purpose. And it's, so it's not necessarily so inaccurate. So if there are a couple of points there, uh, first, are slogans needed? Uh, they're certainly helpful uh, if you're trying to you know, drop a lot of support for something. Um, but my approach to this is also uh, from my perspective as a rabbi, where uh, Torah, you know, the Jewish sources are things that I take particularly seriously. Um, and especially when I see things getting misused uh, for various you know, external purposes. Um, and I think one reason why I am sensitive to this is having you know, gone through various yeshivot, I've seen other people do the same thing for different agendas. And I've also seen people complain about it uh, for their various agendas. For example, if uh, someone from one of the more parochial elements says, here's what Judaism demands because they'll quote X, Y, or Z, you'll find people will say, well, let's sit down and let's unpack this. Um, and, you know, they'll, you know, dissect it, tear it apart, and they'll say, oh, well, you see, there are multiple opinions, or this isn't absolutely, you know, 100% the way it's supposed to go. But when it comes to things of their own, um, meaning uh, policies that they themselves are, um, uh, the policies that they themselves endorse, then all of a sudden the language and the rhetoric kind of changes. And it's more than just uh, a specific issue. It's the method of how do you approach the religion? Because if it's okay for you to do this, then it should be okay for other people to do this or okay for other people to selectively cite sources in order to achieve their ends. And there's a great deal of, for lack of a better term, hypocrisy of method. Um, when people say this type of approach is okay for us, but it's bad when you do it uh, to achieve your ends. And even if it might be very useful for a political perspective, I think it's very harmful to the religion, um, which may or may not matter to the activists as much, but that's also kind of my approach to it too. Uh, because Torah is not going to line up evenly to either Republicans or Democrats in, or conservatives or liberals or whatever parties you have, even as those parties evolve. No one is reading from the Torah 100% and drawing policies out of that, and maybe they shouldn't. Um, but the conflation of the two, I think, can be very harmful to both. Um, on one hand, you can substitute uh, a religious fundamentalism for whatever policies you have for liberal as well as conservative. And also, I think it leads to a misunderstanding of the religion itself, and it can very well cheapen the religion. Um, so you had mentioned about you know, the history behind it. Uh, in the Jewish texts, you have um, one of the uh, foundational texts of uh, the rabbinic tradition is the Mishnah. 
the Mishnah, it's hard to say, is, you know, would, would be considered a slogan, but it was designed in a way that it would be very easy to memorize. But for every line of Mishnah, you can have several discussions in the Talmud going back and forth over the details behind it. Um, so the, you know, even just you know, trying to uh, abridge or abbreviate complicated ideas into certain sayings may be necessary for the transmission, but it can't end there. Uh, I mean, you still have to know everything else behind it to sort of help you unpack it, uh, because otherwise it is so easy to manipulate and abuse these texts for your own ends. And again, if you're going to do it for the stuff that you like, someone else is going to do it for the stuff that they like. And I think for me, it's really important to keep those things separate. All fair points. Um, in fact, uh, you mentioned how you can come at it from different ways and how Judaism doesn't exactly fit in with uh, either Republican or Democrat positions. I once saw a cartoon posted on social media pointing out how people who are Catholics don't exactly line up with Republicans or exactly Democrats. Um, and the same could probably be said of other worldviews. Um, but what you're saying sounds a little bit almost paralyzing. I mean, People want to do good as they see it. Um, and it sounds like until you get a PhD in religion, you can't necessarily take uh, various principles, even well-heeled and well-agreed-upon principles, uh, to work in that name. In other, or at the very least, someone might argue that. Uh, so perhaps people shouldn't immediately use slogans. They should study them. They should understand the opinions. But what happens if they say, okay, I've read the opinions, uh, there's three schools of thought or five schools of thought, and I think the school of thought B is the correct one, and I'm going to now uh, engage in political action based on that. Uh, would that solve the problem or would that just exacerbate the issue of turning uh, religion uh, into uh, your, your personal tool? Um, so I think that's a great question. Um, and I think you can approach it from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, on one hand, if, uh, if you're, how to put this, if you are, I, I think one issue is how you phrase the, um, how you phrase what you're doing and just a subtle nuance of rhetoric between saying the following idea is supported or justified within Jewish sources and this is what everyone else must do. For me personally, I make a distinction between an individual choice, for example, how a person understands things and how a person votes, and another once someone speaks categorically in the name of religion with the implication that other people ought to follow it. I mean, making that grand uh, statement of Judaism, excuse me, demands this policy or that policy. So sometimes it can even be a subtle shift. Um, uh, I'll call out uh, Zachary Schellenberger is an MD PhD and he wrote a wonderful piece along these lines in the foreword about gun control where he didn't say Judaism mandates gun control but he said how gun control could be compatible with certain Jewish sources which is you know you can see it from you know one hand a very subtle thing but for me that's incredibly important because the statements that you make are much easier uh, to be verifiable with that. Where I think you still have the question, and I'm not sure if people you know, have really thought this through, at least as much as I think they should, um, is that if 
you, you can say, well, we're allowed to vote based off of our religious values, even when our policies mean we're going to impose our religious values on other people, then you can't object when other religions do the same thing for their own values. So an example I give is I don't personally see much of a difference between saying my God doesn't want this woman to have an abortion or my God doesn't want these two people to get married and my God wants me to take your stuff and give it to someone else. If you want the ability to vote by your own values, even if you don't say it categorically in the name of your religion, I think that helps from the religious perspective. It doesn't help with the church state issue and I'm not sure how to get around that because either you try to divorce things entirely, which you know people don't wanna do. And as I've seen more in the past uh, couple of years since Trump's election, there's a great deal of very vocal, very religious political rhetoric coming to support leftist causes. Maybe it was always there and I just wasn't paying attention, but to me it's certainly more striking when it comes from organizations that are, had historically been very much, uh, very strict in terms of separation in church and state. And it's very hard to have it both ways and I don't think people have really thought that through. So regarding that second point, going through in depth is, isn't going to help that much. But if you do the study and you acknowledge, hey, this approach may fit within Judaism or it may get 80% and that's good enough for me, fantastic. It's something we can be inspired by. But then I would, I would sooner present it as, here's my opinion and here's how I got there, as opposed to any sort of implication that this is what Judaism says and making a categorical ruling, which we have enough trouble with for matters of, uh, you know, pretty much any matter of Jewish law, uh, to applying it to politics as well. Well, that's certainly a, a very a very good explanation of the problems uh, involving using slogans involving, I guess, imposing a policy on someone uh, in that church state sense. But what about, say, uh, the slogan you've covered latest, uh, the slogan that is most well known, especially in the United States, of tikkun olam in the American sense, where as a general rule, at least so far as I know, is not really used all that much to advance policies that force things, unless it forces like social redistribution. Uh, ostensibly, from where I'm sitting, it seems to often uh, advance uh, Jews and uh, even Gentiles. I saw, um, I recently saw the Mr. Ro the Mr. Rogers documentary movie, which is absolutely a wonderful movie, by the way. Uh, and towards the end, um, he says that one of the things that people should be engaging in is tikkun olam. Now, interestingly enough, uh, he, who is a, a lifelong Presbyterian minister, he said he called it the correction, the repairing of creation, which is much more explicitly a religious term. Um, but more, but even in its somewhat more, and maybe you have a problem with the fact that it's it's a more secularized uh, slogan. It's used. It's called. Uh, correcting or repairing the world. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with something uh, that basically encourages people to go out and do good and help people, uh, whether the disadvantaged or or otherwise? So first off, I think all of that stuff is you know can be fantastic, uh, and even if it's not under tikkun olam, you know there are other you know 
I mean, if you really want to get pedantic, uh, I think all of that stuff you'll find in the Talmud just maybe under different headings, like maybe Gimilut Hasidim of acts of kindness, um, matters of tzedakah and things like that. Where, if it, and I would say here too, if it's done as a personal motivation of here's what I'm going to do to help make people's lives better, fantastic. Um, it could, however, cross the line of when it's done again prescriptively towards other people of here's what you have to do. Where I think it can get blurred is if tikkun olam is used to advocate for something that may actually go against Jewish law, um, which can happen. There was a story a while back uh, about uh, a Jewish guy who dressed up as Santa for tikkun olam. I don't know if that's strictly a violation of Jewish law. I haven't looked into that in detail. Um, but that certainly, I think, stretches it beyond its meaning in that it, you know, if you, it would not be able to, I think, work to just anything that you personally happen to think makes the world a better place because you know, just as we argue over you know, morality, we can argue about what makes the world better and how would repairing the world be. Um, so I think that itself is, is a huge issue. And you also mentioned about redistributive economics, which I think absolutely comes up. Um, I remember reading a while back that someone objected to um, a justice being appointed to the Supreme Court uh, because of tikkun olam uh, for some policies that had like nothing to do with anything that you'd find in the Torah. And you know, if it's just simply of, look, we have this idea of try to do good, here's how I define good, then you would just say, here's how I define good. I think the use of tikkun olam in that sense, because it is attached to the religion, gives it a certain sense of gravitas that's being appropriated for whatever it is people that want to do. So instead of just saying, I'm going to do what I think is right, I'm going to hang my head on this idiom and say, oh, look, the, you know, Talmud or, uh, says, you know, hey, t there's this idea of tikkun olam. This is how I define tikkun olam. And therefore, I'm within this religious rubric. And you can say the same thing about um, matters of justice, uh, which was so big, I couldn't even deal with that because you could write books on that, where the Torah commands people do justice. What's justice? Well, you've got, you know, hundreds of pages and thousands more in commentary that try to hash out what is justice. And, you know, that and maybe you can come up with a grand general theory. People have tried, but it doesn't always work. Um, but it's much easier to just say something like, here's, you know, Torah says justice. Here's how I define justice. Therefore, the Torah says you should do what I say. So again, there too, I think there's a lot depends on the subtleties of how it is employed and what gets tacked on to that. Because if your personal idea of tikkun olam happens to go against the Torah, then you know you can say, well, oh, this is completely fine the way that I see the world. But in my opinion, then you're still messing around with the religion too much. Uh, very much fair enough. Um, if I may, and even though I'm a conservative, uh, could you perhaps, I've noticed that uh, when you're discussing sacred slogans, so far at least, uh, you're discussing primarily or almost exclusively slogans um, that Jews with a more liberal bent use. Uh, are there any 
slogans or rabbinic or Jewish terms that you've noticed that the more conservative uh, side of the Jewish world uses and abuses, if you will? You know, so that's a great question. And it was, it's a fair critique. I wasn't trying to look at just um, the liberal side of the equation. It could just be that's what I happen to be exposed to more. Um, I haven't seen it as much, at least in the U.S. politics. That doesn't mean that it's not there. It could just be I'm not following enough people. I'm not following the correct people. Um, I think one issue that does come up, and you'll see this more in Israel than in the U.S., uh, would be the idea of modesty, which isn't technically a slogan, um, where you know it's certainly an idea that has very, uh, in my opinion, specific parameters within Jewish law that gets extended to a whole bunch of categories that are like pretty much, you know, uh, medieval and repressive towards women. So examples would be uh, blurring uh, pictures of women, uh, if not, you know, censoring them entirely, ripping off pictures of women on signs. Uh, Shoshana Keats Jaskol has put up with a whole bunch of this stuff in uh, Beit Shemesh where she lives. Um, and that would be one issue that I can see on that side. When I spoke to my sister um, about this, and this maybe I think a little bit more within, um, you know, certain more orthodox worlds in Israel um, of Chadasha uh, Sur Minat Torah, which means, uh, or at least as it's used idiomatically, is something that is new is prohibited by the Torah. And where she is, this is something that she gets encountered, where people say this over and over again to say any sort of innovation or any sort of change is in fact prohibited by the fact that it is new and it's never been done before. Even if it doesn't violate any biblical law or any rabbinic law, the mere fact that it has never been done, that proves that it is forbidden. Um, I see that more in the Jewish cultural side of things, but I have not seen such things invoked on the grand political stage as much in the same way. Um, yeah, at least not from the Jewish side of things. If I spent more time reading up, um, you know, perhaps evangelicals or, you know, other you know, other religions and other denominations, I may see them use a few things, you know, a little bit more. Hmm. Um, yes, those really sound like uh, like slogans I've seen a lot, especially Hadasha Sulmina Torah, which is, is, seems to be like the, the, the rallying cry, at least of the earlier generation of ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, in America, but especially in Israel. Um, so, at least my impression from reading uh, what you've written so far, it's an ongoing series, so I noticed, is to try and have a more careful, balanced, nuanced understanding of Jewish principles. Indeed, from what the, the time I've spent learning uh, Gemara, I've noticed that if there's one thing that's consistent in the, in, in the Gemara is that there's no such thing as a single overarching principle almost ever. There's just always clashing values, sometimes a tons of, ton of clashing values, and you need to figure out uh, how that works and how that operates. Uh, do, does, um, how has your uh, series been received in this way? Do people feel like it, uh, it helps ground them and helps, um, 
helps them feel like the these slogans are is, are principles that um, can be understood in a more cautious, dare I say, conservative manner, or do they get frustrated saying, "Well, come on, these are great ideas." So I'd say from the feedback that I've gotten so far, it's been kind of interesting. I've had some people have made the comment that you did that they tend to focus more on the liberal side than the conservative side, which, you know, I, 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 it's something I appreciate, but also part of me kind of you know felt it was irrelevant because, well, let's say it was even more the liberal side. You know, the liberals should at least be held to the exact same standards that you'd hold the conservatives. So leave it at that. Um, some got annoyed at some of the things that I quoted. Um, there was one comment on uh, the piece on Selim Elohim, which is um, that the idea that all mankind was created in the image of God. Uh, going through uh, Midrashic homiletical texts on the subject is very much at odds with the way a lot of people are taught. And these are texts that uh, you know, aren't that well known. They're not particularly studied. Uh, and one person said that I quoted unauthoritative texts. And, you know, my approach was, you know, these aren't authoritative. It's not a matter of law. These are all different aspects of Jewish thought from the same canonical text. So, you know, if you think this is a valid compendium, then all of these opinions have to be valid. You may not like it, but you can't pretend that it's not there. Um, as far as the others, there are people who I think they appreciated the concept behind it. Um, even again, you have for, for people who are conservatives, you know, the partisans, I think, either way would either be predisposed to liking it or predisposed to disliking it. Um, I think that there even though they may not be as vocal, I think that there's a, at least enough people who do get annoyed at the politicization of the religion. Um, I had given the class on Love the Stranger um, at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale last year, which for the most part happens to be a very politically left-leading synagogue. Um, and at least with the audience that I had there, they seemed very appreciative of my approach, which was to say, not that necessarily that the left's policies are wrong, because I'm fully, I will full, freely admit, most of these political policies are well above my pay grade. That's not my expertise. So I'm not going to say right or wrong. I think those should be defended on the merits. But the general core idea that the politics doesn't line up with the religion, and perhaps we should separate them is something that I think resonated with a lot of people, even as they were sympathetic to the particular policies being advocated. Um, there are people for whom it's uncomfortable and they may not know why. Um, and I don't know how many of they are because you know, it seems that there are a lot more out there that just don't know, don't know how to have the conversation about it either because they don't know enough. Um, or because they just, uh, they, they, they prefer to fit in with their community, so they're not going to raise any trouble. Um, and I think there are others, again, I don't know how many, who genuinely appreciate learning more about the sources. Um, there are, you do have, a, I don't want to say a lot, but I, I've encountered enough people who don't want to think. They just say, tell me what to do, and I'm just going to do it. I've actually had, in my rabbinic capacity, someone tell me, just give me the answer. I don't want to have to think about it. And you'll have those. 
and you'll have other people who are so so invested in their confirmation bias that it doesn't matter what evidence or proof you say or either for or against as long as you say stuff they like they're going to follow it but you also have people who may be politically active who also want to have a better understanding of the religion and as if it get if that keeps getting drowned out by all of the politics they're missing that out so if someone can at least address these subjects with a certain degree of reverence and not trying to score any points, you can actually have a certain engagement behind it and perhaps expand the thinking. Um, again, they don't have to change their policies or their politics or you know register for uh, different parties. But at least if they realize, oh, okay, you know, I may support this policy. It doesn't line up exactly with Judaism, and that's okay. For me, that's even a win. And I think that's something that. You, there are a lot more people out there that you know, feel the same way. Speaking of people who are out there who feel the same way or people who are receptive to your ideas, I noticed uh, in your biographical description that the Jewish Telegraphic Agency listed you as one of the top 50 Jews to follow on Twitter. Uh, you and I are both very active uh, on that social medium. And I was very curious to ask you, as someone who has experience, as you noted, as a communal rabbi, as someone who's given physical lectures at synagogues in, in different capacities, are there any, say, appreciable differences, nuances, interesting insights you've gotten from being, I guess, a Twitter educator, uh, someone who, among other things, does Twitter lectures by threading uh, tweets with various sources? Uh, is it better? Is it worse? Does it help? Uh, do people like it? Do people not like it? I'm very curious to hear because um, we often, often hear uh, on various uh, media sources about how social media is just the absolute worst thing in the world. And as someone who spends a lot of time trying to do good, I wanted to hear your perspective to see maybe if like the sacred slogans, things are a bit more complicated. So, I mean, I, I would say even from my own experience, the people who say that social media is generally bad, I can understand why they would say that. Um, and my perspective is maybe a little bit different than someone who's coming to it new. I started on Twitter, I think, in 2008. Uh, and it was, for me, more like a front end to Facebook at the time, and it was never something that I took seriously. Um, but back then, Twitter was not toxic. Uh, one example I give is if someone were to ask me a question about Judaism, I would assume, hey, this person is asking a very sincere question. And I didn't have to assume a priori that this person is a troll or if something that I happen to say that might have been imprecise. Someone's going to dig that up and you know try to hold that against me. Not that that's happened, but I mean, to me, I should say. But you have uh, I think there was one essayist called it like a certain um, uh, outrage archaeologist where you you start you know, going through a person's whole record on Twitter to find one offhanded comment made eight years ago and, you know, blow that up just because they happen to be in the news for that moment and potentially ruin someone's life. Um, so my whole approach to Twitter was, it, it, I was never in that toxic world as much. Um, when I moved to Israel in 2014, my patterns on Twitter changed drastically for two reasons. One, uh, in a different time zone, seven hours ahead of New York where I lived, 
the action on Twitter is completely different. So now when I wake up in the morning, you hear, you see like the last gasps, gasps of insanity from, you know, wound up Americans who, you know, are just going to sleep and, you know, it comes down for a bit until Americans wake up and they just wake up angry, I found. Um, and I also now have a full-time job, which, you know, gets in the way of my tweeting, which you could argue is probably a good thing. So I can't get involved in as many discussions as I had before. So for me, I have enough distance that I don't need to get sucked in as badly as say a lot of other people do. Um, regarding the Twitter classes, you know, those were interesting. I, I'm not the only one who, who does it. I, I definitely know that. I don't know if I, other people may have done something similar beforehand to explain uh, to the listeners, when I give classes and many rabbis give classes um, on Jewish texts, we put together a source sheet, uh, which has primary sources plus translations. You have it all laid out a couple of pieces of paper and you go through the texts that way. And it's a very efficient way of covering particular topics. Um, so I have a whole bunch of them made from uh, my time as a pulpit rabbi and bunch more that I keep making. And these could be very useful for Twitter because you can just take a, a little sn uh, image snippet of a source, paste it into a tweet, and you can add commentary or you know one or two lines of commentary on the source that users can read. And an advantage of using the images is you know, Twitter has a character limit. When you put in an image of the text, uh, you don't have that limit. You may have to split it up into a couple of images if there's just too much there, but you, know, you can put a lot more information there. And more importantly, you can include uh, the original Hebrew because translations uh, can always be off. Um, I think in terms, there are people I know who uh, find it useful. There are other people who said, you know, warn me next time so I can mute you because depending on how long they go, it just eats up their entire feed and you know I can get that but I can live with it um, but for you know certain people who may not be as exposed to it uh, they seem they do seem appreciative uh, and a challenge that I feel that I have is you know Twitter from certainly people in politics will know you know certainly in more than more than I would uh, Twitter with Twitter you can spread misinformation so fast uh, around the world. And again, thanks to confirmation bias, as long as you say stuff that people are going to like or agree with, they're just going to keep on retweeting it and amplifying it, and no one's gonna bother to check it out. So you, know, you could have someone who talks categorically about Judaism, and as long as your audience knows less than you do, such that you, um, uh, you can pretty much say whatever you want, knowing you're not going to get called out on stuff. So if you don't really respect the audience and you just want to pontificate your particular positions, well, sure, you just go right ahead because you're preaching to the people that you want and you know in the back of your head that the people you're talking to don't know enough to find flaws in your argument, don't know enough to point out, hey, you're blatantly misreading the source and that's not what it actually says. Um, so from my perspective, because like I see this go on enough times, but I can't respond to every single one because I just don't have the time. So that's kind of frustrating on my end. So the best I can do, I can't stop 
the flow of misinformation. The best thing I can do is try to counter it with the best information that I have. Um, and with the same sort of approach that I had at the synagogue, which was if I'm going to address a congregation, no matter what it is, I have to be very careful with the claims that I'm making and making sure that I don't make any claim that I cannot defend with a source. And sometimes that means not speaking categorically about Judaism, but rather pointing out, hey, there's actually a range of opinions here. Um, and I also, when I do this, I'm, I'm very explicit that I'm not being comprehensive because you, you just can't be comprehensive. Um, and the, my approach is usually not to take a definitive stand on something, but rather to show, hey, there's actually a range here. And once you show that there's a range, then the people who say it must be A or it must be B, they're not, they're already not 100% because they now have to deal with all of those sources that contradict them. Now, if you have a certain hermeneutic about how to process all that data, well, okay, you can come up with something. But, you know, on the very basic level to show people, hey, all this stuff is complicated. If I can get people to at least think there's a lot more here than what certain people would have you think, that for me is a win. So for me, it's setting the goals, trying to put sources out there. People are going to do with it as they see fit. But I also think by if the goal is to try to present a range of opinions, um, then I don't think it's as threatening to people who hold of, you know, oh, I prefer this or I prefer that, as much as it would be more of a threat to the people who would say it must be this or it must be that. And those people, you know, I'm okay annoying, but for everyone else, it's not going to be that much of a threat to say, hey, both exist. So you could still believe what you want, but maybe you may not be as fanatical about it. And you know what? In today's day and age, it's an incremental win, but it's, you know, I'll take what I can get. So um, if I may be a bit cheeky and put this in a slogan, uh, your general approach, both on Twitter and in your sacred slogans approach is slow down. It's complicated. If you remember anything else from this uh, long and extended podcast, whenever you hear someone speaking authoritatively on Judaism, Keep this in mind uh, and try and study and ponder things and move carefully. Do you think that would be a nice summary? Uh, for most things, absolutely. Um, you know, there are going to be a couple of areas. You know, I don't think that, you know, in my own opinion, I think there are certain definitive statements that can be made, assuming that um, that they can uh, you know, get demonstrated. In fact, one of the sacred slogans that I had uh, was on the limits of pluralism. And I showed like, hey, actually, you know, not everything goes. There are objective limits, you know, things that you're just not, that you just cannot do. Um, but, you know, on the whole, absolutely. Uh, just think a little bit more, learn a little bit more, see what the range of opinions are. It doesn't mean that you cannot reach a conclusion, um, but you just have to be a lot more thoughtful about it. Um, because there is so, so much out there and so many different ways of reading texts, so many different ways, uh, so many different approaches, I should say, of uh, weighing the authoritativeness of different texts. Um, and that's something which is always in the back of my head, too, because if someone happens to quote a rabbi and you want to rely on that particular person's authority, well, then I would have to ask, well, why do you rely on this rabbi here, but not on this other stuff that he says that you don't want to follow? Um, 
you know, so for that reason, I tend to focus on the Talmud because it's something everyone you know, agrees is at least somewhat canonical and authoritative, though we can debate the details. Um, but these are all really critical questions that have to be asked that very few people uh, really bother to sit and think about, um, and let alone try to communicate to everyone else, because I find particularly more amongst uh, the more activist types, the, the goal is more to get people to believe something or to follow along a certain path uh, than it is to have people understand. Um, and I don't think that that's, you know, it's, it's not always a bad thing to, you know, nudge people. It's what a lot of rabbis do. Um, but I think that also depends on your role. And I think there are ways of doing it that are, in my opinion, more honest than others. Um, so yeah, if the goal is to educate, well then educate and show these things. And if you want to have an opinion, say, here's the opinion that I hold and here's why and explain why. It was something that I did a lot in my own synagogue where uh, when I would you know, sort of teach matters of Jewish law, I would explain a case. I would say, here's my opinion. Here's the basis for my opinion and go through this. And after a while, people would pick up, oh, you know, he's actually has a system there. There's an approach that he has for how he makes certain decisions. And while I'll say this is okay and that's not okay and vice versa. Um, but that's something which takes a lot of time and I'm not sure Twitter is really the best thing for that. But if you can't do that, then at least realize for pretty much any idea that someone has about Judaism, there's going to be someone else who disagrees and someone else who argues. And if you want to take a side in that argument, that's okay, nothing wrong with that, but you really have to do your homework first and look into it and spend a lot of time wrestling with it, which is 95% of what the Talmud is. If rabbis just wrestling and art with subjects and arguing about lots of different questions from different angles and going through in, you know, in sometimes painful detail to get to the very specific points of disagreement to reach a conclusion, and there's a lot of that in Judaism and you know, to simply reduce it to one or two lines, it can be useful for certain degrees of transmission provided you go through all of those details um, uh, at some point, but it can also just as easily be used to manipulate for those who don't know any better. Okay, I think uh, that's a great uh, lesson to end off on. Um, why don't to, you let people know uh, if they want to ask any further questions, where and how they can find you? Oh, sure. Well, first off, thank you very much for having me on. This was most enjoyable. Um, you want to find me on Twitter. My handle is at J-Y-U-T-E-R. Uh, my website is joshuter.com, J-O-S-H-Y-U-T-E-R.com. Uh, and if you want to reach out, I've got a contact form there, too. If you want to send me an email, uh, try to respond as quickly as, uh, as possible. And... Yeah, feel free to hit me up. My uh, direct messages are open on Twitter too, if that's a bit easier for you. Uh, if you have any questions, I'll you know, try to answer the best that I can. But again, same disclaimer applies. Just as everyone disagrees with everyone on some point, whatever I tell you, I promise you someone out there is going to disagree with me. And uh, I myself can be reached on Twitter uh, at Avi Wolf, A-V-I-W-O-O-L-F. My avatar is a green worm. Uh, my DMs are also open. Please feel free to send me any comments, questions, uh, suggestions, and criticisms as long as they are civil. Uh, and I will try and get back to you or in, and at least take heed of them.